difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Our absent co-host Scott Tobias packed up his Zune and went to space, but we're sure he'll come back whenever that thing's battery runs out. I mean, how's he going to even recharge it out there? James Gunn has spent the latest act of his film career bouncing back and forth between Marvel and DC-derived projects, in each case putting groups of oddball, emotionally damaged superheroes on the screen. For now, he's committed long-term to DC, as the creative head and co-CEO of DC Studios. His 10-year plan for DC, with a massive slate of interrelated movies and shows on the way, means he isn't going to have much time for Marvel. So he's saying goodbye to his Marvel Cinematic Universe characters, the Guardians of the Galaxy, with a trilogy capper that functions both as a send-off for his iteration of the Guardian team, and a staging point for movies written and directed by someone else. In Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the usual batch of space-dwelling bozos, including expat earthling Peter Quill, big dumb comic relief Drax the Destroyer, small dumb comic relief Mantis, alien tree comic relief Groot, extremely angry and serious comic relief Nebula, and the rest are all cranky over losing their teammate Gamora to complicated multi-MCU movie shenanigans that have her still in their lives, but without access to any of the history that brought them together. But nobody is crankier than Rocket, the bipedal talking raccoon with the mysterious past that's been teased at over the last several Guardians movies or Marvel team-up stories. That past is finally revealed in Volume 3, when Adam Warlock, a dopey new character played by Will Poulter, turns up to grab Rocket and haul him back to their mutual creator, the High Evolutionary. In this iteration, which is much changed from his comic origins, Rocket's creator is a cruel and obsessive man who repeatedly brings fully intelligent life into being, then snuffs it out for being imperfect. The Guardians have to go up against him to save Rocket's life, and if they save anyone else in the process, well, that's the kind of surprising outcome that they generally don't plan for, but that makes the Guardians movies a little warmer and a little more heroic than they might be otherwise. We'll get into it after this break. quite a while but no matter what happens next the galaxy still needs its guardians hello we come in peace <laughs> come on drax seriously dude no dude no no Ow! <laughs> Forget where we came from. We have been running our whole lives. Pete, I'm done running. So I feel pretty strongly that your your tolerance for slash embrace of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies just depends a lot on how you feel about these characters. They're they're very much ensemble movies about how this specific batch of oddballs functions together and bounces off of each other. Where are all y'all on just the Guardians as individuals as a team? 
strong pro i i, I like these films uh this and and it's uh i think it's my my favorite corner of the, of the mcu in large part because i find the characters endearing and, and well characterized and well played and these movies are fun and they tug at the heart <laughs> uh, I agree these movies are fun and they tug at the heart. I think like my tolerance for these characters is pretty much exclusively as a team. Like I don't think I like I, I'd be pretty hard pressed to pick out like a favorite guardian. I can definitely like point to ones that have like the more interesting storyline in any given movie. And I think this movie in particular, obviously Rocket is uh, the focus and I really enjoy having him as the focus instead of Peter Quill, who I find pretty annoying. Uh, but I do appreciate that the film also seems to find <laughs> the films also seem to find him annoying at this point and kind of push against him with all the other characters. And I actually appreciated the sort of, Gamora, Star Lord, you know, relationship reset uh, here, and watching him struggle through that, and kind of getting nothing in return for it. That was kind of a nice anti-payoff, I guess, to the romance that has never really done a whole lot for me here. But and actually, I, this movie was probably the first time I genuinely enjoyed Nebula, like on her own and not as sort of a, a foil. And I think Karen Gillan performance has evolved a, a lot since the, the, the first film into a I think she's got a better handle on the comedic side of it which makes sense I mean she was introduced as an antagonist and now where she is you know she's kind of allowed to take part in the comedic rhythms of this team more and uh, I think this movie did right by her more so than the other two yeah if I had to point to a favorite guardian as of this movie it might be her and maybe it's because her her particular shtick doesn't feel as worn as the others. Like, I kind of love Dave Bautista as a person. Uh, just his his interviews and his online behavior just really appeal to me. I think there's a, a persona there that you know, may just be a persona, but it just seems, he seems a lot more like open and authentic and interesting than a lot of the people in Hollywood. But Drax's particular shtick of just kind of being the the meathead that always thinks he's right is just it's not just not my favorite thing in cinema, you know. And his inability to necessarily hear or understand anybody else is not my favorite thing in these movies. And a, a lot of the other shtick that goes on in them, again, is not my favorite, even when the banter lands. But Karen Gillan's particular brand of kind of like wounded prickly nobility, particularly contrasted here with Rocket Raccoon's particular brand of like prickly wounded nobility. I think I vibe with those performances and with those characterizations, maybe more so than with a lot of these other characters. But uh, Genevieve, I think I think you've nailed it. I think this group is most interesting as a group. And that's why I am a little dubious about the place that this movie leaves them, which is kind of, we're going our separate ways, but in a way that will enable the MCU to pick up anybody whose contract they uh, <laughs> they want to extend or anybody that they want to bring in for cameos or what have you. It, it's kind of very openly both an ending and not an ending in a way I I find maybe a little unsatisfying in the the great Marvel sense of anything that might eventually put money on the table has to be allowed for as a possibility down the line. 
I was fine with that though. I think it was definitively an end to this team as 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 we've known it, and and it, you know. But you just don't necessarily want to like kill these guys off, you know. Let let them let them leave door open for them to come back, right? Or, I mean, or kill certainly... them all off. When it's always just, gosh, what's, 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 what's wrong with you? No, you do. You do it have doesn't a point. matter I mean, if you I... kill them off. They can come back. See Gamora. That's true. <laughs> oh, God. There's literally no way to get rid of any of these characters if MCU wants to bring them back. We just yeah. have to accept that. And you haven't even seen Fast X yet. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I was I was going to kind of leave this for the tail end of the this this discussion, maybe. But no, uh, Keith just ripped the lid of it right off of it. So let's let's just jump in here. As of this recording, Keith and I have both seen Fast X, and that is another movie about kind of like broken, battered people who come together to form a, fi- a found family. And every time they run up against a villain, the villain either dies or ends up as kind of part of their familial crew, you know, nebula style. They just, they, the, the movies keep getting bigger and bigger. The casts keep getting more and more sprawling. And the attempt to give everybody a payoff and an arc uh, seems seems sort of familiar. Are these movies so similar because they're speaking to a, a cultural need that we have? Or is this just what happens when somebody tries to emulate the MCU's success? Those are not your only two options. Those are a couple <laughs> options I'm throwing on the table. I mean, I think it's it just speaks to the franchise moment. Like you don't 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 throw out anything you might want later. You know, you, you just put it you put it in a plastic tub and stick it up in the attic and maybe if you need it, it's there. I mean, I also think it's just part of a dynamic that stretches through decades and decades of pop culture, which is the the work family dynamic. You know, like these are these are all to some extent coworkers, but more than that, they're family, especially in the fast uh, movies, as, as they will will let you know. But you know, I think the it, it, the the found family, I guess, dynamic is a very powerful one uh, in pop culture for a, a lot of reasons, and I think different viewers can find different sorts of power in that dynamic depending on what their own situation is and i uh, I, I think it allows for different people to connect emotionally in different ways instead of just having a single protagonist in a main relationship you know there's a, a lot of opportunity to i guess empathize with characters when you have an ensemble who all care about each other to some degree or another that is a really excellent point. Although I would say that the Fast X characters for me just aren't all that differentiated That's true. in <laughs> particularly specific ways. Like they each have like... Uh, we we literally have a piece going up tomorrow at Polygon that's about how they each basically have two traits a piece or a trait and a skill, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's more or less like eh, that's the guy that does computers and is hungry all the time, like. That's the the person whose main characteristic is related to Dom. That's that's pretty much all they have. Whereas you could probably sit down with any of these Guardians characters and and make a chart of their weird and specific traits. Although, as I kind of suggested in the intro here, a lot of them would cross over. They're they're all emotionally broken in some way. They've all suffered losses. They've all kind of crammed those losses down into a, a tight little hole in their heart. And they're all James Gunn characters, which it took me a little while to realize, maybe it was as of Suicide Squad, or maybe even more so as of Peacemaker, the TV show, which I really, really love, 
that I realized that James Gunn just kind of tells the same story over and over and over again about badly damaged people who put up a big bluff front in order to pretend that they're not badly damaged people and then gradually find other badly damaged people who they can't necessarily 100% communicate to in a heart-to-heart kind of way, and they don't necessarily come out and speak their damage to, but that they find that they can be comfortable around and that they can be themselves around in a variety of ways. And again, this is this is pretty much my jam as far as uh, stories go. I spent a lot of volume three noticing all of the ways I was being manipulated mm-hmm. and being pretty okay with it. There's an ending dance number in this movie, and I <laughs> loved it. <laughs> I mean, it, hel- it helps just... that it's one of my like all-time favorite songs, uh, Dog Days Are Over by Florence oh and the Machine. Oh, my God. Yeah, Florence um, and the Machine is is something. But, you, you just yeah. need to, like, Ewoks, ba- but, you know, banging on Stormtrooper helmets would be the full Return of the Jedi ending uh, for this one. But it, it's not just a, a closing dance number, which we, gosh, all the way back at The Dissolve, we did a podcast about the sheer number of films, especially from DreamWorks, that end that are like, we we don't really have an ending for this. Let's just have all the characters dance to a pop song. And it's a, a trope that we normally kind of hate. But here, it extra bugged me because pretty early in the film, Drax is invited to dance. And he says something like, I do not dance. Dancing is for idiots. And I thought, all right, well, by the end of the film, uh, he's going to dance. And it's it's going to be a big triumphant moment. But he dances before that too, though, with the kids, right? The 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 cage kids, like that's that's like Drax's whole kind of moment of you know tapping into his his father, his dadness. Sure, I thought this, it was is, nice this is true. Yeah. But but I still think the uh, the ending dance is the payoff one because he he stops and you have to watch him like lower his his guard. Sure. You know, you you watch him think about the fact that earlier in the movie he said I shall not do this and then there's the Gilligan cut and he does do it. Mm-hmm. But that particular beat was what made me aware that this movie does that with just about every character at least once. You know, there's just there's so many I'm never going to get over Gamora and I'm never going to be able to go on with my life. Hey, guess what my my, my plot line is? Like I'm never going to open up about my past and you're never going to know who I am. Okay, guess what the what the plot is, and just so forth and so on. There's there's just a lot of whatever whatever comes of the future. This shall not happen, and then it happens, and it it feels satisfying when it does, but noticing the pattern does make it a little exhausting, at least for me. I I mean I definitely relate to like the awareness that I am being manipulated and sort of the immediate reaction to sort of tense up at that. And I did have that feeling multiple times during this movie. But I think at some point, I I think the point where I just like gave myself over to it was the hallway fight scene, um, Mm -hmm. which was, I don't know about you guys, but that was probably the standout of of the movie for me, at least as far as its, its action sequences go, the No Sleep Till Brooklyn music cue which like it's this is far from the first like sort of 360 degree fight scene that we've seen but it did feel different to me maybe just because of the way it was choreographed like it had like forward movement while also this 360 degree movement happening but it it just kind of encapsulates for me this feeling of something that we know to expect 
just executed in a way that is so satisfying that you can't really be mad that <laughs> that like you you knew it was coming you know you're like oh I, I knew it was coming and I'm happy it's here <laughs> yeah it had a real rhythm to it like there's you know little beats and little gags within it as well it wasn't just like it wasn't just show offy for the sake of being show offy and it just and it also felt like and I, I believe that Gunn and his team do their own action scenes uh, as in contrast to other a lot of other Marvel directors like it, it did felt like something that was of a piece with the rest of the film and not just sort of this this pre-constructed action scene that, that they built the rest of the film around there was no blue light no evil blue light to fight against <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it yeah. like in terms of like contrast with other Marvel films too uh, not to just bag on other MCU films, but I, I appreciate that that the universe was not at stake. You know, the the, mm. the the stakes in this film are like obviously the high evolutionary has some pretty dire plans and ends up destroying a whole planet. But but uh, the real <laughs> stakes are are the happiness of these characters that we come to care about over the course of three proper films and several Avengers films and that one scene in that one Thor movie that nobody liked. Um, <laughs> but um, and the oh sorry and a holiday special was actually. Which was actually pretty key in in in, uh, in in this as well. Like, there's some stuff that was set up in there that was. Yeah, uh, that introduced Cosmo, right? Yes, Cosmo. Uh, Cosmo. <laughs> I'd watch a Cosmo movie. You know, I know. Yeah. I, I actually, <laughs> I, I agree with what you're saying before about the team being stronger than the individual members. But, but you know, Cosmo spin, spin her off. <laughs> the whole business with uh, Craglin says that Cosmo's a bad dog mm. and she wants him to take it back is another example of the movie just saying, here's a thing. You want this thing now and you can't have it. You want this thing and you can't have it. You want this thing. All right, here's the thing that you mm-hmm. want. I, I mean, it, it felt like putting a treat on a dog's nose <laughs> and just telling it not to eat the treat until you until you say to. And but then when you get the treat, not, it's so good. It, it's even better. That than one did not it. land for me. Oh I, no! Oh. No, I'm was, just. I'm. You don't have dogs. Dog that's just it. Like, but like that. That is the most like doggy dog thing that you know, a dog that would be unsettled by the disapproval of 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 a uh, of a companion. Yeah, it was it was, it was perfect. Yeah, compared to Dave Batista, like breaking down with that that little okay fine expression on his face and dancing, it it just it, that one that one was not it for me. Right. But boy, I. I will agree with you about that hallway fight, which, you know, Gunn has said uh, was inspired in part by the hallway fight in Old Boy. It's just sort of a, an acknowledgement of great pop culture hallway fights. But it's also something that, again, is just super, super my jam, which is there are so many fantasy movies, superhero movies, you name it, where everybody has powers but they don't really use them mm. together in an interactive kind of way. And whenever you get a a thing like the fight sequence at the beginning of X-Men Days of Future Past or some of the like the late in the game combat in Avatar the Last Airbender, the original animated TV show, where people start using familiar powers in new ways cuz they're using them with other people. And they're playing off of each other in a a dynamic combat where they're working together. I'm an absolute and total like mouth drooling sucker for that kind of thing on screen. And I just I love to see it. If you had told me that I would find a new way to be impressed by Groot at this point, I would <laughs> not have believed you. But no, no, we, we we got some interesting new Groot moves here. Go go kaiju or whatever it is they say. Yeah. <laughs> I I I like I like the current version of Groot. I you know, if if you want a strong indication of what it means to 
evolve a character over time. Like if you look at the difference between Baby Groot being super duper popular and James Gunn just moving him through a series of new life stages and and characterizations, finding new ways to use him narratively and on a character basis versus Baby Yoda is cute. Let's just use him the exact same way forever. That is a, a big indication to me about the difference between a story that moves forward and a story that doesn't. That's a good point. You mentioned the the use of uh, the the Beastie Boys song here. I, the Guardians movies have always been pretty heavily soundtracked to the point where, you know, James Gunn's awesome mixes have become big releases. How did the soundtrack here land for y'all's? It's a departure. I mean, you draw it on the Zune, you know, allows them to break out of the 70s mixtape uh, stuff, although you get a couple of 70s nods as well. I thought it was, I, I thought it was used really well, though. I mean, you do get the big payoff with, with you know, moving up to 2000s and Florence and Machine at the end, but I appreciated the the 90s-ness of, of, of the sort of tracks and some mm-hmm. things I wasn't expecting. Like, I did not expect to hear X or the, the <laughs> in a Marvel film. It's just an example of someone with good taste curating the soundtrack and, and, uh, you know, I thought it was we were listening to it on the way home from the movie. So I guess it's probably it tells you everything you need to know. Man, I'm so torn at this point on the acoustic version of Creep, which has just been all over cinema for so long now that I'm I'm tired of has, it. No, I, I don't think you're right, though. I don't think that version of Creep has been all over cinema. There's been like slowed down pop versions but, but sure okay but, that's that's fair i i mostly i guess i mean creep kind of like conceptually as a an indicator of that particular mood but i mean i just to, to finish the thought there i i was really kind of sold on it here yeah. just in terms of setting rocket's mood and setting the mood for the beginning of this movie I don't know. I, I would have thought that I was done with uh, hearing hearing sad, slow core versions of Creep as soundtrack choices in movies or or trailers, maybe more so trailers. But it landed for me here. Those of us that were in college radio in the 90s could tell you that it's the uh, acoustic version from the CD single ver- of, of Creep that was uh, <laughs> available at the time. Well, that's good to know. And, uh, you know, the little come and get your love uh, callback also kind of sold on that. I enjoyed uh, hearing some heart crazy on you mm-hmm. at the beginning. That that felt like a good kind of bridge between the the eras. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have any strong. I, I mean, I, Dog Days Are Over was the one that, that you know, got me. The rest are, I, I admit nothing like jumped out that much. The music reference, though, the, of Adam Warlock at the end, uh, talking yeah. about how much he enjoys Adrian Ballou and King Crimson, is like, yes, of course. <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is like, like the most prod rocky character in comics. Of course, of course, that's what he's going to be into. Yeah, we we didn't we haven't talked about uh, that character. Uh, I wasn't sold on him at first, uh, we, but by the end, I really was. We definitely need to talk about Adam Warlock. Are, are either of you familiar with his comics iteration? Not really. Cause that's Only a, like what I've a, read. That's like a deep deep cut <laughs> uh, uh you know it's a deep cut within like the cut you know uh, of uh uh within the the cosmic wing of the marvel universe which i don't know all that well i, I know he has some some super fans so guess who one of those super fans is uh he's somebody who called into this uh <laughs> podcast not long ago and was featured bob? in a feedback segment would that be bob so it would in fact be bob <laughs> Let's look One forward the... to a, a, a voicemail about Adam Warlock for <laughs> future, in a future episode. I, I will straight up admit, I wrote a very long piece about uh, Adam Warlock's, a little bit about his use in this movie. 
and a lot about what they're setting him up for because Adam Warlock, the the comics version, is this. He's a Christ figure. Mm-hmm. He he dies repeatedly to save planets. There's a whole arc where the high evolutionary sends him down to counter Earth. the high evolutionary who uh, I believe did not create him in the uh, original comics. He was created by a group of people trying to create the perfect man. If that sounds familiar from our, our various other arcs uh, that we're we're talking about here, and he promptly saw that they were not perfect and killed them. Like. In their first, uh, in his first appearance, so don't really need the uh, the the big dramatic uh, drawn out movie stuff here. But he uh, he went on to to sacrifice himself and die to save uh, various planets over and over. The high evolutionary sent him down to counter Earth, and uh, he was in fact crucified there and died. And was brought back to life and, you know, gave them all a, a message of, like, what their creator truly wanted for them. So very 70s, you know, biblical figure stuff going on. And it's really odd here to see him as, a, like, a bumbling imbecile. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like Poulter's portrayal of him, but it's it's really hard for me to mesh this with what I read of the character in any way, even knowing that. Marvel's kind of putting him also in a place where he can go on and become something a little more akin to the comics version, or they could just leave him like this forever. Whatevs. There's some fun nods to it too. Like the the whole moment where he's in a Pieta pose with uh, his mother uh, in this too. So like, the, the, you know, it's clearly maybe people who know, who know the character. I mean, that's one thing you can say about some Marvel movies in general is even if they're diverting really far away from source material, they're constantly reminding you that they remember and care about the source material. There's a ton of stuff that we're very deliberately skipping over talking about here. Uh, The high evolutionary as a character and as an intention and Rocket's whole backstory. And that's because these things are the things that most connect with Island of Lost Souls. So we will get to those in connections. Uh, But as far as just maybe a last thing about looking at Guardians of Galaxy Volume 3 as a movie... These films look pretty different from the rest of the MCU to the degree that that Marvel allows such a thing uh, to change from director to director. And maybe that doesn't stand out here in any more uh, than it does during the sequence with the the colored spacesuits go- jumping okay. down to the <laughs> I was the all ready to, to pull planet. the colored spacesuits space out of my pocket as my example, and you got it. <laughs> no, well, go, go ahead. What, what, yeah. what, what do you have to say about that image particularly? Just the color palette is one that I don't associate with, uh, with these movies. I mean, like MCU, like so many sort of blockbuster movies, is kind of very beholden to the sort of blue and orange and then i guess uh, guardians you know throws quite a bit of purple in there, in there too you sort of your your nebula uh, or uh, you know northern lights colors you know the uh, color palette but there was something almost like i guess it was a little like 70s or like late mid-century vibe to that whole planet uh, you know flesh uh, parts of it aside but the sort of the, des- the overall design and the color scheme struck me as something that you know is drawing from the era the same era that the music initially did in in these films yeah uh, and, i, I, I yeah. like that about it as you might guess um. <laughs> I found the Fred Flesh Planet very squeaky. <laughs> I mean, it's it's meant to, but the the point where they just like cut a a big juicy fat hole in it, uh, 
or where they're squishing around on the surface. It's it's just kind of gross. And it's it's unique and distinctive in a way a whole lot of the the kind of earthbound action of the MCU isn't. It does have that just very very 1970s Marvel kind of uh, kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Like I went back and, and read a bunch of 70s era comics kind of like in preparation for this and just the kind of like big cosmic weirdness stuff that you would see in kind of Silver Age Marvel. It just feels like it's being played out here, but like in, in 4K super high def where you can literally see all the pores. There's also, and this relates to the Flesh Planet as well, uh, a, a willingness to get a little gross uh, with with these uh, movie or movies and that uh, tracks with with, with Gun. Um, but I'm thinking of the the image of Peter Quill just kind of his face deteriorating in space, uh, his third such uh, <laughs> a near death uh, experience. I think as they lampshade uh, qu- quite explicitly here, but just like you know, the idea of letting your you know, handsome male lead, uh, just kind of distorting him uh, into ugliness, however briefly, is of a piece, I think, with the film's, you know, general willingness to get get a little gross here and there, more so than I uh, associate with any other MCU films. Yeah, every once in a while, he'll give you a reminder that he kind of started trauma. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, the um, the gross, drippy flesh planet uh, <laughs> may seem, you know, gross in a, a harmless and relatively uh, comedic sort of way, you know, a- akin to trauma stuff. But uh, the the stuff that goes on with Rocket's mm-hmm. past and animal abuse here is, I think, not harmless, and it it does really go further than MCU films than any other MCU film. I think goes. In terms of not just innocence being hurt, but innocence being harmed in a, a long-term and, and gross and graphic way on screen. And that's something that really startled me about this movie. But it's also something that maybe we should get into into connections. So let's do that after this short break. When Sire moves us to the new world... We're going to need names. I mean, 89Q12, it's not really a name. So, I would like my name to be Lila. 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 That's a pretty name, Lila. Thank you. I think my name shall be Teeths. Because although we all do have them, mine are definitely the most prominent. Teeths. <laughs> Teeths. Lila. Teeths. <laughs> me be called Floor because me is lying on floor. You're lying on a floor? So your name is Floor? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> floor. <laughs> what about you, friend? Someday, I'm going to make great machines that fly. And me and my friends are going to go flying together into the forever and beautiful sky. Lila and Teeths and Floor and me. Rocket. 
So now it's time for Connections, where we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common, starting with, I think, maybe the the most central thing here is just the torture and abuse of animals. In both of these movies, we have just the the use of screaming, I think, to indicate somebody being hurt more than they can possibly bear and surgeons standing over them, continuing to hurt them. The the use of torture in a, an MCU movie is surprising to me. The, the torture of small, terrified animals is pretty shocking. And the way Island of Lost Souls kind of queasily goes back and forth between are, are you watching a man be tortured or an animal? Are you watching something that's somewhere in between the two of those things be tortured? And how does that change the dynamic of it? Uh, I think is very interesting. I, I think Edward charging in to protect a, a man from being tortured and then discovering that it's it was an animal and being really uncertain how he feels about it is pretty uh, is maybe pretty indicative of the kind of moral questions we're supposed to be asking ourselves with at least that film and maybe with both of these films. Yeah, I mean, I think that plays out uh, with Rocket maybe most explicitly in uh, uh, this a scene which and this kind of goes back to what we were just we were talking about as far as like the awareness that we're being manipulated and it you know hitting really hard despite that which is toward the end when he discovers the cage of baby raccoons you know and this is a character who has spent many 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 movies denying that he's a raccoon you know he's he gets angry when he is uh, called a an animal or a beast or anything like that and this is a moment of him recognizing himself in in these animals you know and it was very effective <laughs> for for me um i mean i don't know how you can look at a bunch of cute little baby raccoons about to meet a terrible end and and not be at least somewhat moved by that. But the fact that Rocket is is moved by it and it kind of uh, forces him to, not even forces him, but it, you know, it's a, a moment of acceptance of his connection to these animals that he resisted association with. It kind of blurs the line between you know, are we man or are we beast or are we both, you know? And obviously, Rocket is not a, a human character, but he's certainly humanoid that in a way that kind of allows for that. It's very Island of Lost Souls as well, too, mm-hmm. because I mean, the whole, you know, we, unless you're a sadist and a weirdo, you're more likely to identify with the the animals in that than than with Doctor Moreau. Um, you know, we have the high evolutionary, not maybe not exactly a human character, but but a um, human ish, human enough <laughs> character who's you know very very smart, obviously, and and uh, sophisticated, knows all about the, you know can, can explain the themes of music that was made many years before, but it's also a monster in a way that the the that his own monsters aren't it's very you know guns has said that this was inspired directly in many ways by island of lost souls but i I think that's that's thematically as well as more superficially going back to rocket and the baby raccoons i i find that whole thing sort of fascinating because of the, the layers to it it's not just a recognition of his own origins it's him reaching out to to literally save himself in a way, you know, mm. to to go back in time in a manner of speaking and rescue a baby that is exactly like he was and nobody was there to rescue him. 
And with this whole narrative being essentially a story about child abuse, more or less, about a kind of a malign parent who gaslit and abused a child who had to learn eventually to separate himself from the parent, the image of him then coming along and rescuing the next generation from that parent, I think, is probably meant to land with children of abuse in a way that it lands differently from everyone else. I mean, both of these stories are kind of malign parents stories, you know, evil creator who lies to their children and manipulates them and uses them stories. But that that moment with Rocket and the baby raccoons, I think, more than anything, just feels like just kind of a, a wish fulfillment fantasy of mm. the ability to to go back in time and offer yourself the helping hand that nobody offered you. Really no attempt to rescue or save the creatures in Island of Lost Souls. Only, only escape. No, uh, they're, they're, they only have the one boat. They don't have a whole <laughs> planet to take them out on. Yeah, but And therefore, uh, you burn down their entire island. Yeah. Yeah, I... I it, it it is maybe a little bit more of a point of contrast, at least in far as far as how our quote unquote heroes relate to these creatures and you know the responsibility I guess they they take for them because in Island of Lost Souls it's you know obviously they get to take down their creator but there is really no sort of concern given to what becomes of them after this and and they are treated throughout most of the movie more as a scare tactic and occasionally comic relief. You know, um, they don't necessarily evolve, I guess, into the human sympathies of our main characters. Well, there is a world of difference between don't look back at the island full of animals that we are burning to the ground versus we have to get every single animal off of this burning yeah. island, <laughs> uh, even at the expense of, of human people's faces. It, one, of the, one of the things that didn't really land well for me as a comic beat in this movie is when they're trying to rescue all of the animals and uh, a monkey jumps onto one of the the rescuing humans and rips her face up. I'm like, what, what are we learning here? Oh, are we, are we learning that, it's, that. A, yeah. it's a bad idea to try to help people because they'll hurt you? I, I don't know. It just, what a, what a weird choice to make in the middle of what's meant to be a very positive sequence about, about helping others, about what's, no animal left behind. I don't remember that in that way, but maybe I'm just, maybe I'm misremembering the film. Eh, it's yeah. you've seen it more recently than I have. I mean, there's yeah. I, there's very memorable face ripping that happens, but it is <laughs> no. that's much more dramatic yeah. face ripping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sort of the uh, uh, the equivalent of Moreau being uh, taken down with his syringes or no, his scalpels. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, with that in mind, I mean, uh, Genevieve, you want to kick off that particular connection? It's uh, on your list. Sure. Uh, and I mean, I, I think this is a, a neat transition point to our sort of uh, evil scientist uh, figures of the High Evolutionary and Dr. Moreau, who uh, both kind of have a a similar highfalutin <laughs> air about them that, that allows them to pontificate uh, about uh, what they uh, what their goals such as they are but uh, eventually falls away to just reveal a just a, an, an evil dude you know with a, mm-hmm. a, a small evil dude exerting power uh, where he can because that's that's what he needs to do they're they're actually in, 
incredibly analogous characters. <laughs> not, they not really all. are, and I think I think Chuck Woody Awuji's uh, performance as as uh, the High Evolutionary is is really a match set with with uh, what Lawton's doing in Island of Lost Souls. They're just, they're both just going for it, and both like being big. I mean, like it's a standout for me among the Marvel villains because it's not like you know this this hand wringing tough guy it's, it's like this this pissy weirdo you know this, <laughs> <laughs> like just really easily flustered and angry and and kind of deranged it's uh it was a i think it's a really um i don't want to say fun character but it's certainly not a predictable villain in, in the way that we've seen before and he's petty. I, I think that's one of the most interesting things about his character mm-hmm. is he is so resentful. He's he's so driven, as he says, by perfection and the search for perfection. But then when he gets a creature that can surpass him in terms of whatever it is, intellect or creativity or just, just base problem solving, when he gets a creature that exceeds him, he's jealous of it and resentful of it. And it it drives him even deeper into madness. And he seeks to destroy it instead of celebrating, either instead of taking credit for what he created or celebrating where it got to, he just immediately reaches out to destroy it. And uh, Moreau in in Lost Souls is, I think, similarly petty and, and jealous and grasping under all that high-mindedness, but maybe not in in quite maybe because his creations aren't really superseding him in the same sort of way we don't see quite the same pettiness but boy the whole idea that any good villain contains the seeds of their own downfall uh, is certainly realized in both of these cases with both of these people just directly bringing their their doom upon them with their choices they also both have a, a second in command who uh, eventually turns against them as well. Montgomery in uh, Island of Lost Souls, who you know very uh, explicitly helps them uh, escape, and in Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, we have Miriam Shore's character, and I guess maybe Nico Santos a, a little too, but uh, Miriam Shore's character, I guess, which I am uh, informed is Recorder Vim, uh, but I, I would not have been able to tell you that without looking at the cast list. Uh, she kind of has a, a similar moment of of clarity, although she doesn't, uh, I recall, if I recall, take direct action to, uh, in in the same way she's the one that pulls a weapon on him at the end and tries oh, to shut course, the whole thing down right yes so I, I i recalled incorrectly yes so they they do both uh you know uh, very explicitly turn against their uh not creators but their uh their bosses i guess <laughs> Yeah, the idea, and I think that's a, just a very potent place for any story about a, a mad scientist or a mad creator to get to is the point where the person that has been going along with you the whole time says, okay, you've crossed the line now, and it's time to stand up. Both of them, I think there's there's not a, a sense in either case that like you you picked the wrong sidekick or your your followers are weak. It's like will go along with so many atrocities up to a point but you've just you've you've left behind everything that you meant to do and you've gone just into a, a new place of nonsense that we can't go. I'm okay being a lackey to a madman up to a point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've crossed you're, that you're, line. You don't want to. You don't want to be a, the lackey to a like a really madman or a super madman. 
But I mean, I, I think in both cases, there's a, a sense that the specific line being crossed is you're going to doom us all like we you're you're going to take us you're going to take the rest of us down with you. And we can't have that. I think there's an interesting point of contrast between these two villains goals, too, which is, you know, the high evolutionary has a whole plan, you know, recreate do do Earth, but better uh, on on counter Earth. And if that doesn't work, blow it up. Whereas I'm not sure. Moreau does not seem like a great long-term planner. It seems he like just he like, just wants to keep pushing. For, yeah. he, you know, like like you know, like we said, he started with the plants, and then he moved on to kind of crossing animals with humans, and now he wants to actually breed them, uh, which is like the next step. So yeah, it just feels like a continual uh, pushing of how far he can go. I could swear, I mean, it may not be a central thing, but I could swear that when he's uh, talking to Montgomery, he at least says something that feels very, like, I'll show them all uh, this, I I said I could do it, and I did it, and I'm going to show them all kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not underlined in the way it is with, uh, you know, some mad scientist creators. There is that, but it's also kind of like his whole approach seems to be like, well, what happens if I do this? (laughs) Whereas a higher missionary has like a more of a... He's got goals. He he wants to build. He wants to do Epcot, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> but with, with the, but with uh, you know, animals. So then, the funny thing about that, in a way, is that he's he's got that very specific goal that's create the perfect species and the perfect society, and nothing ever quite lives up to his uh, his standard of perfection, because I'm not entirely sure he knows what that is like the whole sequence where he's going on and on and on about how his latest kids are not capable of creative thought and in the same room with him at the same time you have two kids playing what looks for all the world like you know the world's oldest game as seen in the sandman comic and tv show where you have to imagine yourself as something that will beat whatever the previous person has imagined and you have to do a a one-upmanship thing. It really seems like they're in the room playing a creative game while he's ignoring them and ranting about how his creations can't be creative. And it just seems like a very pointed uh, and, and obvious message about his inability to see the benefits of what he's created in what, again, feels like a very pointed uh, metaphor for for parentage, or really for abusive parents. At the same time, with Moreau, it just kind of seems like he, I, I'm not sure that he has a place that he wants all of these people to go, or like a society that he wants them to form, or a, a function that he wants them to have. What is the end goal of perfection for him? Is it is it just a pretty lady that will not spurn him? I mean, I mean, he is using them as slaves, basically. You know, um, like I mentioned in the last half, that sort of community of creatures that we see. But I mean, there's no real indication that they do anything other than wait for Moreau's bidding slash punishment, you know? And he does kind of, I think, see them as inhuman and as objects that uh, he can, you know, pick up and discard uh, as as he needs them. 
Well, he certainly has plenty of them. <laughs> they, they, yeah. they, can, they can be disposable, <laughs> um, which is also true of the high evolutionary as well. It's like there's definitely he a has matter whole planet of, of them. <laughs> whole, whole planet, and, he'll and they blow are it up also disposable. Not, it, it, it looks a lot like in the Atlanta suburbs, yeah. but um, you know, but, but but he he seems to see them more as like pets or or something uh, compared to Moreau uh, with Loda as well. You know, he seems uh, to at least be initially interested in her as a, a plaything for himself, and that didn't work out. And you know, he he has his slaves, and he wants to have his woman, and it seems maybe a little more. Um, I don't want to call either of them noble goals but it's a more selfish <laughs> goal uh like a, a what can you do for me uh versus what can i do for for you uh mentality uh misguided as it may be in the high evolutionary as far as these two characters behavior goes i, I kind of want to draw a a more that uh, scott's not here so i can get away with this um kind of extra textual uh comparison between these two films when Islands of Lost Souls came out, it kind of got a, a rocky reception because it was considered so grotesque and, and inappropriate. And when uh, Paramount tried to re-release it because of the Hayes Code, a bunch of stuff had to be cut, specifically with Lawton. And apparently they tried to re-release it again uh, to theaters a second time in 41, and they were just straight up denied by the board. There have been a lot of different cuts and re-edits of this film because it's been considered so, you know, grotesque and uh, horrific and honestly just plain weird. And that reminds me a fair bit of the reception that we've seen around Guardians 3, just in terms of of people being so shocked by the grotesque and, and graphic nature of some of the animal abuse here. I mean, there's a sequence where Baby Rocket, like just post-surgery, is tossed into a cage with you know his his scalp showing and like open graphic wounds and he's like trembling and crying and and talking about the pain it's a lot mm-hmm. you know for a, a society that's gotten kind of thick-skinned about a lot of human suffering and progressively more and more thin-skinned about animal suffering it's a lot for people to go through and there's been a lot of commentary online about how you know this movie needs trigger warnings cuz it's just difficult for kids in particular for people who bring their kids to marvel movies but also people with just sensitivities to torture and pain and helplessness and animal suffering in particular on screen for kids and and my wife um <laughs> like I, I, I took my daughter to the, the press screening here and and she obviously moved and upset by all that but was not like you know made like uncomfortable, whereas my wife wanted wanted to flee. She liked the movie, but she wanted to flee during the early rocket scenes in particular. Uh, I mean, I, I appreciate that it goes to those extremes. You know, I think Marvel movies kind of automatically get PG thirteen these days. This is an R movie. I, I think you know the face ripping scenes alone. I think are, are uh, would qualify it as an, as as an R if it were coming from another studio. But you know, I think it's another example of of gun kind of challenging what these movies can do i'm not sure there's really a coherent ethic to it either i i you know in terms of like you know just being broadly against animal abuse um and you certainly get some images of human trafficking toward the end as well but you know i i I do think even if there's not like a um a clear political point to it I, i do think those moments are kind of deeply felt and they're really quite affecting as well yeah i mean it's it's asking 
uh, and it's not the first uh, story, of course, to ask this, but like the the price of progress, I guess, you know, you uh, we haven't really talked about the the non rocket characters, his his friends of uh, Lila, Teefs and, we can't, and Floor. We can't, we can't talk about Teefs. <laughs> we can't talk about Lila. <laughs> Floor. You must not talk about Floor. <laughs> but but like, I think I think we might have to like throw up a we've we've really well, well we spoiled the hell out of the the thirty two uh, Island of Lost Souls. Sorry, I think the expiration dates passed on that one but in this case we're going into spoiler territory that i i definitely would like to warn people about because i felt like i saw half the beats of this movie coming in advance with you know the as i say the announcement of this is never going to happen meaning this is going to happen but what happens with uh rocket's friends i did not see coming in part because I was uh, specifically diverted by something that happens in the trailers that I, I did not realize how it was going to play out. And I was I was pretty shocked. Yeah, I didn't watch uh, the trailers. I, I try to avoid them for the most part the, these days. So I, I don't know exactly what you're referring to there. But uh, even uh, setting aside what, you know, the, the ultimate fates of these characters, just sort of going back to the the unsettling nature of it like rocket is by far the the most i guess or the least scarred uh physically of of any of those like uh uh floor in particular is terrifying with the sort of metal uh bear trap uh mouth uh you know and they they've all been uh, hideously modified uh in in, in ways that will be familiar to uh, to people who have read a story that may come up in, in your next picture show. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of the the mechanical aspect of uh, that comes out in those characters that I think adds another layer of, of horror that, or, or not even mechanical, but the non-biological, I guess, element. You know, we, we don't uh, well, we do see it, I guess, in in Rocket at the beginning when we uh, we kind of have to like break into him and discover the kill switch and all that. But you know, it, the other his friends kind of make it more explicit the extent to which these are living creatures that have been merged with non living parts, and that is kind of an, an added layer of of horror on top of the animal experimentation aspects of this. Yeah, looking at the two films in comparison in that regard, I think it's interesting. Like we've talked a bit about how the the manimal's makeup is startling and surprising. One aspect of that is there are these big crowd scenes where I think it would have been very easy to just kind of construct a, a bunch of very similar furry masks and slap them on people. But a great deal of effort seems to have been put into differentiating them from each other in terms of species, in terms of maybe degree of surgery, like how much they were manimaled from their original animal forms. And they really stand out as individuals in terms of you find yourself imagining like what what was done to turn an animal into mm -hmm. that particularly the contrast between that and these very very cg creations that are the merging of of the organic and the mechanical with just very uncomfortable join points like mm -hmm. they they don't look like they've been you know hybridized cyborgized 
and then left to heal in a way where they're comfortable with it. They all have these like open wounds or or raw places Mm -hmm. where the mechanical aspects like drive into their bodies and they all look very horrifyingly uncomfortable. Uh, I just, I think in both cases, these movies are trying to like not at any point let you get comfortable with what's been done to these animals. And yet they're so sweet and they're (laughs) they're such sweet characters too. I mean, it's, 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 um, as part of what makes them so, you know, their their fates, but also just their their existences so moving is that these are they they're young and they haven't they're still resilient and they haven't given up on on the possibilities of life and uh, all right, yeah I'm, the, I'm the scene Can't, where they're all about, naming they're anymore. all naming themselves <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and talking about their lives on Earth yeah it's it's rough stuff. And it's very much meant to be. I mean, they they speak with the cadence of young children who are still kind of learning language. They don't seem to be like Rocket gets very smart very quickly. And Lila seems to be sort of the adult of the bunch. But Florentines are kind of sweet, dumb children. And that just kind of exacerbates the degree to which everything going on with them is is pretty horrifying. Is Linda Cardellini like secretly the best performance in this movie too? I mean, she's, that's, it's such a really, it's such a nice performance. It's particularly aggravating because, you know, Lila the otter has uh, just a, a big ongoing role in the comics. There's, there's a lot of Lila the otter as a character out there and uh, a lot of potential wasted on the floor with this, unless wasted literally on the floor with this, <laughs> unless they, uh, you know, pull a, a straight up Marvel Comics slash Fast X uh, fast one and just say like, oh, well, you know, you, you didn't see the body destroyed, therefore... Yeah, I mean, we do get that heaven scene, which... Uh, at- okay, don't get me started on animal heaven, because we'll be here all night with me uh, ranting about how James Gunn somehow introduced the afterlife yeah. into the MCU. Yeah. Unless it was Rocket's and vision. Hallucination. You know, Rocket's hallucination. Yeah. But you can't have it both ways, though. This <laughs> this gets into a discussion that we had uh, briefly on the Patreon where somebody was talking about, like, is the entirety of Bo is afraid a dream, like an anxiety dream? OK, yeah, sure. It probably is. Is the last third of Tar imaginary or an unconsciousness dream? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But at the point where you start saying this thing that's on screen that's meant to have a a big, strong emotional impact and changes a character's life and point of view didn't actually really happen. It was all in their head, but you still get all the benefits from it. I just, I, you know, I, I cry foul at that. It's, it's an easy, cheap cop out to say, yes, it's important and meaningful and emotional, but also it didn't happen. So we don't have to reckon with any of the implications of it. I don't disagree. Shut me down. No, no. I mean, that, that was, I think, one of the, the few explicitly manipulative scenes that I uh, was, did, did not come away from feeling like, okay, I'm okay with that. <laughs> But I guess it gave us a little more Lila, so that's something. I liked it, but whatever. <laughs> All right, explain why Scott's not here to to shout me down. So you gotta you gotta stand up strongly for what you like. Because uh, I'm a huge softie in some ways, and that movie kind of had me in it in 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 its pocket uh, by that point. So I, I kind of went with it. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we're we're getting to the point where we really should wrap up. And I don't think any of us wants to wrap up on uh, such a, a dark and depressing note or really by just, you know, sitting in the, the place of, of animal abuse. So I will maybe loop back to what feels like the, the biggest gap between these two films, what feels like the biggest contrast. One of these movies its heroes are basically just witnesses, more or less. Like they're there to investigate and understand what happens on the island. And then they literally turn aside at the at the ending. They're just actively turning their backs on all of this and let's let's pretend and wish and hope that this didn't happen. Let's not take action. The other one of these movies is expressly about heroes and all of the characters involved are taking action to change the the things that they don't like. They're stepping up and trying to make a better world, not just where the victims of this kind of violence can be understood and, and heard and seen, but where the, these things won't happen again. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how these two movies land for you differently in terms of crazy people do bad things, but it's okay because it will come around on them in the end versus let's take an active hand in stopping uh, this this kind of playing God and or abusing children, depending on how how deep you want to go into the metaphor. I mean, I think with Guardians, it just it all comes back to sort of the the organizing principle of this franchise, which is, you know, you're, you're not alone, you have friends, you know, and that's Friend, friends are the most important thing. <laughs> uh, uh, and that, you know, awareness and care for people outside of yourself just keeps getting like growing, you know, as as the film continues, like it starts it's being just about them saving Rocket, like they're explicitly not going on a big mission, they are just fixing Rocket and going back. And then as Rocket's story reveals all these this sort of bigger systemic issue, they are compelled to get involved and become heroes in, in that way. But it all comes out of a sense of you sacrifice for the people you care about. And in Island of Lost Souls, you care about yourself, you know, and and, <laughs> and, and getting the hell off of that island. Or maybe your 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 fiance. She gives good hugs. <laughs> oh, those hugs, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I, I Obviously, one needs a little more upbeat than the other. I don't know if there's really much more to to say beyond that. I mean, you're never going to get a version of of uh, Doctor Moreau that ends with uh, uh, the dog days are over and a big dance, <laughs> a big dance scene as well. But I guess maybe, although I guess in a way, the team dissolves. They all go their separate ways. They're all kind of looking after themselves uh, more than than that's true. Uh, you know, yeah, so it is true. They all go to find themselves. And Mantis sure as hell doesn't look back as she's uh, walking off with her hideous monstrosities. <laughs> but she's not alone. She has her hideous monstrosities. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there there is a sense. I guess. I guess then maybe you can look at that as a connection. Whether you've got your two uh, humans walking away from, well, sailing away from a burning island, or the new iteration of the Guardians going on while various other Guardians scatter to the four corners of the galaxy. They're all with someone. They all have someone that they've that they've found a connection with. With one major exception, and maybe that uh, actually takes this connection even farther, which is that Peter Quill goes back to Earth on on his own, and I guess uh, finds his grandpa in the 
uh, credits scene if you care <laughs> i don't but you know <laughs> uh he is sort of the quote-unquote bland hero figure of, of this movie you know, the human uh as as it happens and he is the one who is you know uh going off solo uh to, to find himself alone Maybe but that then is. immediately reconnecting with uh actual physical family which there's something I, I I put that on the list of things that were told at the beginning of the movie will never happen. Uh, I don't care about Earth. I'm not going to go see my family. I have no connection there. Then, of course, he does. I find a little funny that they follow up him spending half the movie telling us that Rocket is his best friend, <laughs> is the person that he cares about most in the entire universe. And then he, he just kind of takes off and yeah. abandons him <laughs> the, the second he's okay. I kind of thought that Rocket's best friend was Groot, that that was really well yes. established. <laughs> but I don't know. Look, you, you say strange things when you're friends in the hospital. And also when your your girlfriend can't remember you anymore, and maybe you just really need to tell yourself that you have someone who cares about you deeply. And then, uh, you know, you end up worrying about the neighbors and their lawn mowing habits. Yeah, <laughs> as we say, all of these uh, attempts to change the universe and uh, play God end up very poorly. Sometimes you end up with your, you know, giant spaceship destroyed. And sometimes you end up uh, fussing about how your neighbor mows lawns. <laughs> Regardless, Island of Lost Souls is not on any of the standard streaming or rental services, but you can find it streaming free at archive.org or you can find it on DVD and Blu-ray from Criterion. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. We went around and around and around on all of the different creating creatures and playing God movies that we could uh, have have matched up here. And none of them perfectly landed until Genevieve suggested something that I'm just going to let her speak to. Genevieve? Uh, yeah, well, as I uh, previously alluded to, if you were watching Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and you have read the three-issue comic series We Three, you probably turned briefly into the Leo pointing meme from Once <laughs> On a time in Hollywood, because uh, this comic series, uh, by uh, written by Grant Morrison and illustrated by Frank Quietly from 2004, features uh, three, as the the title indicates, uh, animal protagonists who have been turned into uh, basically weapons through uh, uh, human intervention, but they all still kind of retain their animalness. They have not been fully anthropomorphized to the extent of a, of a, of a rocket raccoon. They uh, communicate much more in the vein of, of uh, floor, <laughs> uh, e even less so, I think. Um, and that's sort of one of the, the comics master strokes. I should note, of course, that uh, James Gunn has expressed his love of We Three, uh, his desire to make it into a movie in the past. Uh, so th there is no doubt in my mind that uh, he is very uh, explicitly referencing it in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. It would be a, a incredibly almost impossible movie to make for a variety of reasons. But it is an excellent comic and uh, very unusual uh, in a lot of ways and holds up great. I actually reread it just before coming on to record this. 
it's unsentimental, it's violent, it's beautifully drawn, and it's heartbreaking, but it also does have a, I guess, bittersweet ending. So it is not entirely bleak, uh, especially if uh, you're you're an animal lover and find this material difficult, which uh, I do, but it is still definitely worthwhile and, and, and pays off well. But I think maybe what's most interesting about it sort of in the context of this discussion is it feels like as much a reflection of what the comic form can do as Guardians feels like a reflection of what cinema can do. Like the the way panels are used is incredibly interesting. Just Quietly's art in general is is beautiful, but uh, just like what we see and when we see it and how we see it is very deliberate and is part of the storytelling more so than the words, which are limited, especially in the sequences that we spend with the animals, which I should say, in addition to Pirate uh, Bunny Rabbit, there is also Tinker a Cat and Bandit a Dog. Um, And they sort of communicate to each other in very limited phrases, I guess, throughout. But the story is mostly told through the artwork and very effectively told and very violently told. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's only three issues. Uh, you can easily find it on, you know, your comic service of choice. I got it on Hoopla, and uh, it's a quick but very rewarding read, and uh, kind of deals in a lot of the same themes and emotions of Guardians Three. Yeah, and I know you've both read it before, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of that comic as well, and it should be noted that the dog is also fixated on being a good dog. Yes, uh, not unlike, <laughs> not unlike Cosmo. Yeah, all yeah. the animals kind of think in ways that match mm-hmm. the animals. Oh, yeah, like, you know. like, like, like the cat's just a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> he hates everyone. <laughs> Not just a jerk, but like a predatory jerk. Like yeah. the, the it's as soon as the cat sees birds, uh, it's using its onboard gunnery to mm-hmm. gun them down, start to eat them, and then get distracted <laughs> and walk away, which just seems exactly like the way a, a cat with attached cannonry would operate. But yeah, a, a second vote for just the way the arts used to tell the story in We Three, which I, I find kind of fascinating. There are a bunch of pages here with just these postcard size panels with no dialogue where your eye just kind of wants to wash across them and sort of get the impression of like, okay, there's a, a laboratory and, and people are doing stuff in it. And it really kind of calls upon you and and requires you to pay attention, Mm -hmm. to dive in and go through panel by panel to see how the story is being told and and see how things are progressing on those pages, which like yanks active attention into a comic in a way I often don't experience. I, I have a bad habit when I'm reading comics of focusing on the words and only sort of taking the art in in an ancillary way, especially on a first read. And the way we three operates in terms of calling and directing and and forcing your attention and your engagement, uh, I think is a a really interesting method of storytelling, just on top of the fact that it's an incredible journey style story where literally, yeah, (laughs) got a, a mismatched group of found family animals and you just really want them to get home safe. I think also 
I, I mean, I would definitely watch a film, but I think a film version of this might be kind of unbearable. I mean, it is it is quite violent on the page, and the animals, you know, or or anything more twisted and 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 uncomfortable than the animals in Guardians of the Galaxy. But it's it's a little more bearable in, in comics form than I think it might, than it might be as a movie. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 feels a little bit like a test run for it, for what people are willing to tolerate in terms of the combination of uh, violence and, and experimental animals, especially experimental animals coming into their own. Who knows? Uh, maybe Gunn will eventually get to make that movie after 10 years of DC films. Yeah, I mean, and it's a, it's a Vertigo title, which was under DC umbrella. So I, I think it may, may technically be in his sandbox now. <laughs> Uh, and if it feels like too much for a, a live action movie, I mean, his one of his first projects for DC is Creature Commandos, which is a an animated series bringing together a bunch of the monster characters from the the DC universe. In keeping with Guns, as I said earlier, uh, habit of bringing together like oddball team, super team members into a, a found family scenario. Maybe there's a like a three episode animated version of We Three out there that would fit into uh, what he's doing with DC and what DC is capable of doing. Who knows? But for the moment, uh, We Three by Grant Morrison is our recommendation this week for your next picture show. And Frank Quitely, we, we, we must pay respect to the, to the artist uh, with this title in particular. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Genevieve, you want to tell us about what's coming next? In the new Nicole Holof Center comedy, You Hurt My Feelings, Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays a writer whose husband has been encouraging her through various drafts of a novel. Then one day, she overhears him telling her sister's husband that he doesn't actually like the book, and she's devastated to know the truth. That little white lie reminded us of the most talked-about scene in Hall of Center's 2001 film Lovely and Amazing, when an insecure actress, played by Emily Mortimer, asks her movie star lover, played by Dermot Mulroney, to examine her body and be honest about her appearance he doesn't hold back. And the truth hurts in both cases. In our next episode, we'll look at You Hurt My Feelings and Lovely and Amazing and how Hall of Center spins laughter and insight out of her character's fragile sense of self. For now, we welcome your feedback on Island of Lost Souls, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? I'm a freelance writer, so I'm kind of all over the place, but you can find me at places like GQ, Vulture, The Ringer sometimes, TV Guide quite frequently, and uh, at the newsletter I write with our absent co-host Scott Tobias. It's called The Reveal, thereveal.substack.com, where we write about movies, we do review movies, we do movie stuff. It's movies, movies, <laughs> movies over at The Reveal. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Oh, well, uh, I do do no movies uh, in my uh, role as TV editor over at Vulture, which is why I love coming to talk to you guys every week ab about them. Um, because I, like I said, am the TV editor at Vulture, which by the time you hear this means I will be finally editing things other than Succession because it will have ended. <laughs> <laughs> but as of the time we record this, that is basically most of my job at this point. <laughs> Tasha? I am the uh, film and streaming editor over at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson, at least until somebody sends me a, God, what is blue it? Sky. Blue sky? Blue sky. Is that what we're all doing these days? Until somebody sends me a blue sky uh, invite, I'm still hanging out over at uh, Twitter at Tasha Robinson. 
So is our absent co-host, Scott underscore Tobias, who you can find on Twitter. You can find at The Reveal. You can find in The New York Times and wherever. Uh, he got Blue Sky, right? Scott, isn't Scott he, on Blue? He did get Blue Sky. I was actually just scanning through his uh, his Twitter to see if I could find his Blue Sky ID. But <laughs> I, I think Elon Musk, if he even notices you looking for those links, uh, sends people around to shoot you in the head. So we're just going to let that one go. Uh, if you if you want to follow Scott at Blue Sky, uh, hit him up on Twitter, or better yet, on Peach, his uh, still his favorite still his favorite social media of all time. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com/nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and your reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs> <laughs>